Okay, good morning, everyone. Grab your Bibles, open up to Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs chapter 1. Um, I heard from some people that uh, there are a few individuals who, who want to have a coffee talk, but they feel bad because they think I'm too busy. Um, that is not the case. I don't have anything to do, so I have so much time. Uh, you know, because honestly, uh, the overseers don't require me to like come in for office hours or anything at an elementary school. That would be weird. So, you know, I'm, I really just work at home, and my hours are very flexible, and so I can make time. And I kind of budget it into my, into my schedule to have like maybe five to seven coffee talks a week. I usually end up with one to three. So there are plenty of open spots. And if I am too busy, I'll just say, can we meet next week? So I should be fine. So don't, uh, if in your head you have this thing that says like, oh, he's probably too busy, um, that's not the Holy Spirit talking to you. That's someone trying to talk you out of having a good conversation about your faith. Okay? So I hope we can talk. All right. Proverbs chapter one, let's uh, say a word of prayer and then we'll jump in. God, we love you so much, and, uh, and it's great to be able to come together and sing your praise and to sit in the instruction of your word. Um, we pray that uh, you would just bless us today with, uh, with the subject matter that we're going to cover. Um, always, we want to come in with receptive ears, and we want to we put our hearts in the right posture, but we need your spirit to come and do a work that will be transformative in our hearts. And so do that unto your glory. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We are in our second look at the book of Proverbs as we learn from the wisdom of Solomon, the wisest man who has ever lived. There was no one as wise as him before him and no one who would be as wise as him after him. Uh, God granted Solomon wisdom that would never be matched. And I suppose the only uh, uh, exception to that would be Jesus. But, you know, Jesus is God. God is the one that gave Solomon wisdom. So you can see how that's an exception. Solomon went on to write hundreds of songs and thousands of proverbs, which are these little one-line kind of uh, quick, catchy, clever things to say um, to communicate wisdom to people. Proverbs are, uh, are easy to remember. They're funny. They're ironic. They're sentimental. They provoke thought, but they're very economic and efficient with the amount of words that they use or don't use in that sense. Um, Try to, uh, try to finish some of these Proverbs for me. You might know them from just uh, growing up in the United States. Give a man a fish, he'll eat for a day. Uh, teach him how to fish, and he'll eat for a lifetime, right? Uh, if you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all, right? Uh, what goes around comes around. Never shake a baby you always have like these different little proverbs that people like throw around. They remember, you know, uh, easy things that, uh, that will just kind of stick in the brain. And these pithy little sayings have a way of saying a lot with just a little, and that's how the book of Proverbs is. The first nine chapters is this grand introduction of poetry that keeps calling the reader to seek wisdom and, and beware of folly, foolishness. And then, basically, from chapter 10 and on, it's this collection of unrelated short little proverbs and sayings and riddles, much like what I just shared with you. Now, last week, we covered the first seven verses of the book just to get an introduction into the idea of wisdom, namely wisdom that comes from God. It'll make you good at life as a whole, but you have to train in it, not just know it. You have to practice it. It'll establish your morality, not just your reason. Uh, you'll need it at every stage of life. You'll have to do work in finding it and figuring it out, even though it's so easily available to you. And true wisdom comes from a right relationship with God, namely from fearing the Lord. 
regarding him with reverence and awe, gratitude, amazement. That's what that means, fearing the Lord. Now, let's pick up right after those seven verses. Let's start in verse 8 to see how this book opens with our first direct lesson on wisdom. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 8, this is what it says. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. For they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. So just stop there for a second. After the book's seven-verse introduction on what the whole book is about, the first thing we're given is this exhortation to be wise, an exhortation to wisdom. And, and, but uh, what I want you to key in on, if we can get the verse back up real fast, where is this coming from? From what angle does the author write? Look at the first two words. It says, my son, my son, right? Here, my son, your father's instruction. That's what that says. Uh, that's who, who he's speaking to. But he knows that he's, he's addressing general audiences. He's not speaking to his biological son. He's not even speaking to uh, any other type of uh, son in his, in his family line. It's just anyone who's reading. He gives this angle as if from a parent to a child, a father's instruction, a mother's teaching. These are to be a graceful garland and a pendant for a child. So the reader is first and foremost directed to parents as a source of wisdom. That's the angle that the author takes. And that tells us something. We as parents, whether you're parents right now or whether you will be in the future, parents must raise our children in wisdom. We must raise our children in fear of the Lord with, uh, with reverence and awe, gratitude, amazement. You are the first source of a child's training in this. You are the primary, prominent, priority foundation of your kid's wisdom. That's what you are as a parent. Now, I said the book of Proverbs is really a collection of one-liners. It's not, as, it's not effective to go verse by verse through the whole book. Everyone's wondering, are you covering chapter 1 or chapter 2 next? Or, and that's not really how we're going to go. Uh, I've gone through the entire book. I've categorized the Proverbs into topics. Then I've compared it to other people who have done the same thing. A lot of people have done that, apparently. Uh, and then what we're going to do is we're going to cover one topic at a time. And today, we're going to talk about the topic of parenting, of raising children, specifically on raising children the way that God wants us to, not the way the world wants us to, not the way that you naturally want to. It's not about your style or preference. It's about the way that God instructs us to raise our children, the way that God says is the wise path in raising a child. Now, you and I were raised with non-Christian influences, Uh, secular psychology and sociology telling us what wisdom was. There's no fear of God in it. There's no heavenly wisdom in it. It was all stuff that unbelievers came up with. That's been uh, blasted all over the media, you know, on the news, television, all that stuff when we were growing up. And uh, and I I come from a a psychology background. You know, before I came to to salvation, um, I I was in college and I was learning psychology. That was my major. I got a degree in cognitive and developmental psychology, and uh, as I came to salvation during my college years, I realized that there's a separation between what the world says explains human behavior and what the Bible says explains human behavior. And uh, and there's a choice that needs to be made there, because uh, secular science, social sciences, are full of good observations, 
They're very good at observing uh, behavior and, and logging it, you know, doing, uh, doing good studies, longitudinal studies to see, like, what, what was the pattern and, and what are all the points of data that we need to collect and, uh, and see to draw conclusions. But then those, those same social sciences with all these great observations, because they come from a basis without God, they, they come up with very bad conclusions, they don't talk about a sinful nature. They don't talk about, uh, about a corrupted flesh. They talk about uh, people are in love with their mother or with their father. They talk about things like that. They, they, they kind of come up with these conclusions that, uh, that don't have grounding. And then their solutions to this kind of stuff is very worldly. It's not, it's not steeped in prayer and it's not steeped in repentance. It's just to process through it. If you understand it, then you can overcome it. And it puts all the power into the hands of the human soul instead of into the hands of the Lord. And a, a decision needs to be made on that. Because if you, if you go to a psychologist, if you go to a therapist, if you go to a psychiatrist, if you go to anyone who's tr trying to help you with your mental health, and you say, take away God, take away the Bible, take away Christianity, then what you're going to get is something that will direct you to hell. That's what you're asking for. But when you go to, when you go to someone for counseling and you say, where do I stand before the Lord and how does the Lord want to help me with this? This will lead you to life. That decision has to be made because our society says that children are basically good. They just need a nourishing environment. That's, that's all they need. Just to fulfill their potential, they need a nourishing environment. And just watch what has happened in, in, in the past few decades as uh, that's been a, a very common uh, mentality. It just didn't work. That's why our generations are tilted to greater selfishness. They're more entitled. They're more defiant, they're more extreme, they're more confused, they're more depressed, they're more suicidal. We don't know that we are fools without wisdom. Everyone told us we're good, and they said that we shouldn't be corrected, we should just be encouraged, but not corrected. So we've been trying to raise people with high self-esteem, high self-worth, and it roots them more in themselves than in God. And when they come to the inevitable discovery that the self is not sufficient, then there's this whole collapse that happens inside the soul. Society doesn't tell you that you and I are raising children in Babylon, in the midst of evil, in the midst of earthly, unspiritual, demonic activity. And those are the descriptors for the wisdom of the world. If, if there's wisdom that doesn't come from heaven, then whatever wisdom it is, is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. That's what James said. Society doesn't tell you that our nature is corrupted by sin, but the Bible tells us we are inherently sinful. We're unable to please God unless we're saved. That's what Romans tells us. So what environment are you going to give your kid? Because you have to fight the environment that's already here. You have to fight television, internet, and you're going to have to fight all the voices that they're going to hear at school and at work, even at home. And if you don't intervene and if you don't turn the tide of the flesh and of the devil and of the world, you're going to raise this kid to be an enemy of God. You'll train him only to violate and wound himself, herself, or to violate and wound someone else, and ultimately to be thrown into hell for eternity for crimes against heaven. Will you teach the wisdom of God to your child more fiercely than the world teaches violence, greed, pride, lust, laziness, 
gluttony, self-righteousness, jealousy, materialism, vengeance, sensuality, unforgiveness? Will you teach more fiercely the wisdom of God to overcome the screaming voices that flood your child's mind with those things? The only way to fight against the tide of the external environment of the world is to grow a healthy internal environment by trust in God, trust in Jesus specifically. So we come to the Bible. We come to the book of Proverbs to do exactly that. We're going to take it in four steps. Okay, we'll take it in four steps. Uh, we'll, we'll go like this. The first one will be God's expectations for parents. God's expectations for parents, for you. Okay, that's, that's going to be how he commands you to be a parent. Um, the second one is teach children what matters, right? Teach children what matters. You have to kind of sift through. What are the things you're supposed to teach your child? Well, teach what matters. Major in the big stuff, okay? The third one, we'll talk about discipline children properly. Discipline children properly. And then the fourth one is just going to be some final thoughts. It's just going to be a bunch of one-sentence thoughts that I just didn't have time to put in here. That's, that's the honest truth. If ever I did a second sermon on raising children, those would be the points. But otherwise, they're just, you're just going to get the point headings, and that would be it. All right, well, let's start with God's expectations for parents. Watch how the author in uh, Proverbs continues to exhort the reader, which is us, as from a father to a son, a parent to a child, okay? Proverbs chapter 1, verse 10, it says, my son, if sinners entice you, do not consent, if sinners entice you, do not consent. Go to verse 15. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths. So the exhortation here is to avoid being enticed by sinners. Stay away from evil people. That's the, the easy way to say it, right? Stay away from evil people. Fine. But notice that parental angle. Why does the author say my son as the relationship to the reader? And it's because the best position from which moral guidance comes is the parent. When you are a parent, you're the first and best and most responsible in training your child with wisdom and guidance. So, chapter 2, as, as uh, the author continues, in verse 1, he says, My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding... If you listen to what I say, if you hold on to the wisdom I give you, verse 5, then you will understand the fear of the Lord, the fear of, Yah of, of L-O-R-D capital letters, the fear of Yahweh. Then you will understand the fear of Yahweh and find the knowledge of God. For Yahweh gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Right? You must know that from God comes knowledge and understanding. That's where wisdom comes from. And that's what the parent is meant to pass on to the child. So if you're a parent or you will be a parent in the future, you have to understand your role in raising your child in wisdom. Parent or not, whether you are or, or, or not, or whether or not you ever will be, regardless of that, this will help everyone to kind of figure out how they were raised and to be grateful in, in the t uh, times and the ways that they were raised well, and to be informed on how to do better, right? It's not you were raised well or poorly. It's in some areas, you were raised well, and in some areas, poorly. And you've got you to be able to distinguish that. Be thankful 
For what raised you well and do better in the areas in which you were raised poorly. Overcome that. Proverbs reveals to us the pivotal role that parents play in the spiritual development of their children. No one else can do this like a parent can. It's not their teacher at school. It's not their pastor at church. It's not their older brother or sister. You can't rely on someone else to do it. If you do that, they're going to sit there trying to repair the absence of your guidance. It has to be you. That's non-negotiable. It's going to be you, you. You stand or fall before the Lord on this great command to raise your kids God's way. If you don't, then no matter how much the teacher and the pastor and the, the older sibling try to pitch in on that, there's going to be damage that's going to be long-term, and it's going to leave scars. It's got to be you. Don't leave other people to pick up, the, uh, pick up the pieces from your failed and broken leadership. The teacher, the pastor, the sibling, the grandparent, the coach, the mentor, they'll all be trying to make up for strength that you didn't teach, but they won't have the angle and the advantage that you have. No matter how good they are, they can't match what good parenting offers. But there are places where God is far more explicit about his command for parents to raise their children his way. Okay, so because in the Proverbs, that's just kind of wisdom literature, it's poetry, so maybe that's just someone being poetical. But is there ever a command where you have to do this? Yes, there is. For instance, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. Fathers, which also means parents in the, in, in the Greek, uh, parents, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Don't provoke your children to anger, meaning don't, um, don't make them bitter, but train them with wisdom and godliness. You must you are accountable for this before the Lord. Train them up in the instruction of the Lord, not your instruction, not what you think is right. Don't feel it out and just kind of make the call yourself. Bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. It is not your job to decide how to raise your child. It's your job to raise your child God's way. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Even the people of Israel got this. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh your God. Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and, and on your gates, etc., etc., now, two things to, to think about here, two, two big ideas. First is that you must love God, you must love Yahweh your God with everything you've got, everything that you are, heart, soul, mind, strength, all of it, right? That's the fear of the Lord. That's the fear of Yahweh, where you love him with everything you've got. There's amazement, gratitude, awe, reverence. It's all there. If you don't have that, you're doomed. You, you will not parent well. Even if the kid grows up to be a good kid, that's not because of you. Parents can tell but never teach unless they practice what they preach. The way that you live in front of your child is going to be the biggest lesson. If you don't practice what you preach, you're going to tell them a whole bunch of stuff, but it'll never teach them. They will not be taught by just words. It's got to start with you in your heart. You have to love God with everything you've got. Before you think about raising kids, it has to start here. You have to have commands, God's commands, on your heart, your heart. Because kids are going to reveal 
the parent's heart. When you go to discipleship group this week, one of the things that you get to ask all the parents that uh, are in your discipleship group, before you guys split off into your small groups and stuff, have, have at least one parent share the new depth of sin that he or she discovered in him or herself when he or she became a parent. Right? You just find out, I'm kind of a rotten person. I'm selfish, or I'm lazy, or I'm angry, I'm proud, I'm, uh, I'm stubborn, etc. You find out a whole bunch of stuff. The parents reveal the parent, uh, sorry, the, the kids reveal the parent's heart. Uh, and what's in your heart will eventually, it's just going to come out because you're under pressure all the time. A kid doesn't stop to let you rest. You don't get a break. If you raise your voice and you're screaming and you're cursing at your kids, that's a problem with you, with your heart, right? When you're sitting there screaming and losing it and swearing and cussing at them, that's on you. Sure, you say, you say to the kid, you made me do this, but you, you're, you're screwed up here. There's something that needs to be fixed. If you're name-calling and shaming your kid, make them hurt so that you feel all-powerful, that's a problem with your heart. If you're saying, stop it, what will people think of us? Stop it, everyone's going to think we're a bad family, or I'm a bad parent, or we're gonna think that they're going to think our family has problems. If they're saying that to your kid, that's a problem with your heart. Parenting starts not with the kid's heart, it starts with your heart. It has to. If you had to describe your heart today, what would it be? Broken, hopeful, scared, bitter, proud, hard, uh, you're not alone. You know, if you were to describe your heart and it comes out to something that's, that's not a positive term, if you say, I, I feel like I have a bitter heart or a numb heart, just apathetic, pessimistic, you're not alone and you're not abandoned, right? When you find out the condition of your heart and when you realize it, you can ask God, God, here's my heart. Change my heart. Do something. You can always come to him with complete honesty and say, this is where I need a savior. And he goes, well, you wouldn't believe what I have for you. When it comes to parenting or any kind of leadership, really, you have to assume, and this is still on the idea that it has to begin with loving God with all your heart, right? Uh, when it comes to any kind of parenting or leadership, you have to assume that your kids or your followers, whatever, uh, whoever's following you, like your kids, will never be better at anything than you. They won't be better at anything than you, at least not anything good, you know. They'll never be more humble than you. They'll never be more generous than you, more encouraging than you, more hardworking than you, more patient than you, more reasonable than you, more forgiving than you, more prayerful than you, more worshipful than you. They will never be more at those things because those things need to be taught to them, and if you don't teach to them, they don't gain that experience. And they don't develop those skills. They don't develop that wisdom. Why not? Because they have to learn that from someone. And the best teacher and the primary teacher in a child's life is his or her parents. You. Almost every single one of you know what it's like to be raised by a hypocritical parent. Are you going to be that? Are any of the lessons effective from a parent who's a hypocrite? When they tell you to do something and they, and they live differently, do you go, oh, but, but the words are right. 
No, it just breeds anger. Proverbs 14, verse 26. It's an interesting proverb. In the fear of Yahweh, one has strong confidence, and his children will have a refuge. Right? If you fear God, your children will have a, a refuge. Proverbs 20, uh, chapter 20, verse 7. The righteous who walks in his integrity, blessed are his children after him. Right? A righteous man, a wise man who teaches his children wisely, blessed are his children after him. That blessing goes from what you've gained and it gets passed on from generation to generation to your children. You get this, right? Before you can raise a good child, you really got to be a good child. You got to start working on that now if you're not a good child. If you, if you hate your parents or if you're disobedient and if you, if you have a broken relationship with them, you really have to work on that now. You do. Proverbs 13, verse 1 says, A wise son hears his father's instruction, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. Where does wisdom come from? A wise son listens to his father's instruction, is good at, at being taught, doesn't get all defensive and proud and make excuses and lie to cover things up. That's what a scoffer does. A scoffer is, is someone who's foolish and mocks wisdom, and, and what Proverbs says ends up going to hell. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 20. If one curses his father or his mother, his lamp will be put out in utter, utter darkness. That's, that's kind of the way to say it, right? If you reject your father's wisdom, your mother's wisdom, if you reject it, your lamp will be put out in utter, utter darkness. Like you, you just put out, you're, you're snuffed out, you're extinguished. Obeying your parents is the most direct way that you learn how to obey the Lord. Right? If you, can't, if you can't obey someone that you can see, you certainly can't obey someone you can't see. You have to be a good kid first, then you've got to raise a good kid. It starts with your heart. Okay? Second idea, though, from, from that Deuteronomy passage is that you have to teach this to your children. Right? Uh, not only should you love God with all your heart and have his commands on your heart, but you teach them diligently to your kids. That's the command. Teach them diligently to your kids. It's not a request. It's not an an option. That's a command. It's a calling. It's something that you're held accountable for. Every parent. It's not that you just yell at your kid when he or she does something wrong. You have to teach them God's commands. Well, how? The way that Deuteronomy says it is uh, you talk, talk of them when you sit in your house or when you walk together or when you get ready for bed or when you wake up. You just talk about it. You should characterize what you do with your hands. They should be bound on your hands. You should, uh, you should have your life characterized that the way that you think, like there's a frontlet between your eyes, the way that you think, the, the, your thoughts and the things that you look at and stuff, all that stuff that you draw in and focus on, where your attention is, where, where your focus is, those things should be very evident and, and transformed and defined by the word of God. Have God's word written on your doorpost, on your gate, on a bumper sticker, on a keychain, on your social media profile, whatever. Just put it everywhere so your kid walks around all the time knowing what God commands, knowing God's wisdom. Your child has to see your faith in order to learn faith for him or herself. I have to see your faith. And if you, if you hide your faith all the time and you try to blend in with the world, what does your child learn? worldliness you have to live set apart and you got to teach it to your kids they got to see it in you and if you fail in your one true calling as a parent 
If you don't teach them faith, wisdom, godliness, they learn a different version of it from their friends, from movies, from music, from the news. They'll, they'll latch on to some form of wisdom, and if it's not the wisdom of God, it's going to be earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. So you assume nothing. Assume nothing. Everything has to be taught to a child. You don't just assume that the, child, that the child knows it. Everything has to be taught. It has to come from you as you learn from God, right? I'm raising my son, Elias. He's 11 years old now. And I get to watch because he's, he's at this, this interesting stage where he is a kid. He's, a, he's 11, so he's not even a teenager yet. He is a kid. But certain parts of his brain work really well. Other parts, you know, but certain parts of his brain work really well. And so, because he has like a, a, a pretty good proficiency with words and with math and with just, you know, kind of reasoning and stuff, he comes off to people almost like an adult. He comes off older than, than his peers. And so people expect of him to act like an adult. And when he acts like a kid, they get frustrated. And I, I say they. It's, it's me too, you know. I'm kind of like, why are you acting like this? And I... And I, I Forget the fact that he's 11 years old. And he has to be taught. You can't just assume that because he, he's good at, at words that he just knows things. You can't. And you can't assume that an 11-year-old has the emotional maturity and self-awareness and mental constitution of an adult. I mean, we went through decades of grinding through all sorts of, of uh, fights and, and arguments and things like that to get where we are. You can't assume that the kid just knows the stuff that you had to learn the hard way. They got to be taught. You can't just yell at them or ridicule them whenever they're wrong. You have to teach it to them. I'll, I'll get back to that. But you have to teach it to them. As a, as a parent, you have to understand God's expectations. You are required by God to have faith, to teach faith to the next generation. It starts first by loving God with your own heart having his commands on your heart, then you diligently teach that to your kids in every way that you live. Well, how do you teach children what matters? Let's talk about teaching children what matters. When I became a dad, I had no idea how to prepare myself. You know, they say, oh, you're, you're going to be a dad soon. You should, you should get ready. What does that mean? Okay, you buy a, a, a crib, or, you know, you buy baby clothes and bottles and things. Yeah, okay, I learned how to change diapers. I learned how to do that swaddling cloth action. I learned how to do baby CPR. I don't even know how to do adult CPR, but if, if you're choking and you're about that big, I can help you. <laughs> but you learn how to do, like, baby CPR and all that stuff. All that's fine for tending to a kid's physical needs. But I realize when I read the Bible that my responsibility before God is to tend to my kids' spiritual needs. Proverbs 22.6 tells us, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Train up a child in the way he should go. That's your responsibility. The diapers and the bottles and the swaddling cloths and all that stuff, that's good. That's all, all of that's good. That's great. But that's not your mission. Your mission is to train up a child in the way he should go. Which way should he go? Toward Jesus. With all his heart. With all his soul. With all his mind. With all his strength. So what am I supposed to teach my kid? How do I know if I've covered everything? How do I know if I'm missing or forgetting uh, something to teach him? 
Well, I think uh, I'm going to give you some points, but let me start with the idea that you just have to know what, what your family's centered on. Your family has a center on something, okay? Uh, the family that you came from had a center, and the family that you're building has a center. It's like planets in our solar system. You know, they're, they're held together by the sun's gravitational force. That's the center. That's the thing that makes everything work. Every family has a center too. If your family's center is school or education, then everything that you talk to your kid about, everything you care about is going to be their grades, college, degrees. They're going to constantly be stressed about, about their academic performance. It's going to encourage a lot of cramming, even cheating, if that's what it takes to get the grade. If your family is centered on sports, the priority becomes winning at all costs. Evaluating losers as less than you. Fame, glory. Measuring yourself based on the performance against other people. Not against the perfection of God. It'll be on fun. It'll be on boasting. If your family is centered on money, the priority will become work. That'll be the priority. Many of us grew up with both parents at work all the time. You were raised by your television, by your Nintendo or any other video games that you had. Just grew up on your computer. Nobody sat you down, taught you stuff. If your family centered on fear, maybe because someone, uh, one of your parents has been hurt or abandoned or abused or something like that, then the priority becomes control. You've got to direct the outcome of your, of your life or someone else's life, your kid's life. So if you've, been, if you've been hurt or you've been abandoned or you've been abused, then there's fear. And that's like the thing that you just think the world is so dangerous that you must control every outcome. If the center of your family is comfort, then the priority is just leave me alone. Let me watch TV. Let me read my book. Let me do my own thing. Stop getting in my way. Mind your own business. That's what you'll do. If the parents don't agree on what the center of the family is, there's going to be chaos, confusion, a whole lot of arguing and bickering and fighting, and it's going to be bad. If they don't have a center, if they don't even know what the center is, then the, the center of the family is going to be whatever is the latest crisis, whatever is the latest problem, and everything's going to go into that, and then, and then you ease off, and then something else comes up, and everything goes into that. Let's, let's take a, uh, a bit of a, a thought on this, right? The center of the family should be God. It should be Jesus. Everyone and everything should be orbiting around that. You should date and you should marry someone with the same center as you or else you're really going to run into problems. Either you're going to drift away from Jesus or there's just going to be a whole bunch of fighting and that person will leave. Scripture and prayer and fellowship are the highest and greatest priority when your center is on Jesus. Right? Then you turn to scripture and you submit to it. Then you turn to prayer and you depend on God. Then you turn to fellowship and you trust and lean into your community. That sets the decisions for the relationships in the family when it's centered on Jesus. So let's look at Proverbs 4 and, uh, and just kind of get this idea of how we're supposed to teach. Okay? And let's start at least with the exhortation that we, we need to give uh, wisdom to our kids. Starting in chapter 4, verse 1. Hear, O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight. For I give you good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching. Listen up. There's wisdom here. Verse 5. Get wisdom. 
Get insight. Do not forget and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Verse 10. Hear, my son, and accept my words that the years of your life may be many. So the idea here is, hey, get wisdom. Tell your kid, get wisdom. And that's what should be pushing us forward. That's our mission in raising kids. And, uh, and there's this idea, you know, hear my son, accept my words, take, take on wisdom, get wisdom, and it'll extend the years of your life. That's generally true. If you live wisely, you live longer. It is wise to eat a healthy diet. You tend to live longer. It's wise to get enough rest. You tend to live longer. It's wise to look both ways before crossing the street. You tend to live longer. There's, when you exercise wisdom, when you exercise skills at life, and when you have a fear of God, you tend to live longer. That's just a natural result of living the way that God wants you to live. He's directing you in a way so that your life will turn out right. And if you really push theologically on this, if you live with the fear of God in your heart, if you live with wisdom in your heart, you're saved. You live forever. So yes, many will be the years of your life. But the author then gives us four things that we ought to be taught as the elements of wisdom from parent to child. So if you ever ask, what am I supposed to teach my kid? How do I know what I'm supposed to do? Do I have to teach him how to ride a bike? Do I have to teach him you know, how, to, uh, how to type with the right fingering on the, on the keyboard? Like, what am I supposed to teach my kid? What am I supposed to be involved in and stuff? Well, I think that the Proverbs give you a very good way of just focusing on what matters most, okay? Four things, starting in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. Keep your heart with all vigilance. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. So these are all instructions from parent to child. From parent to child, and it comes down to these four basic things you must teach. First, teach your kid to guard his or her heart. Teach your kid to guard his or her heart. The heart is the seat of the emotions, right? The, the, the place where your convictions and your values and your affections are. That's what we're talking about. If ever a devil were to attack your child, it would be to make sure your child loves something that God hates. That's what the devil does. That's, that's what an enemy does. Teach your kid to love what God loves. Teach your kid to hate what God hates. Don't, don't do what unbelievers say by letting your kid decide for him or herself. That's what, that's what the world tells you. That's what our society tells you. Let your kid decide for yourself. Your kid starts with zero wisdom. Not just with zero wisdom, but he also starts with a negative attraction. He's attracted to foolishness. You have to help him. Look at Jeremiah 17, verse 9. It says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The heart is deceitful. That's the way that the human heart is. If it is not redeemed and transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit, that heart is attracted to evil, desperately sick. You don't just, okay, well, kid, you can just decide for yourself. He will decide evil. Warn your kid of what God says is bad and celebrate what God says is good. Let your kid learn that from you. Teach your kid to guard his or her heart. Second, teach your kid to watch his or her words. That comes from verse 24, right? To uh, watch his or her words. Speak what is good and helpful and then 
refrain from saying something that's not good or not helpful. Children need to be taught how to speak properly. And I, I don't mean just grammar. I care about grammar for my son. You know, I just, I think you have an education, use it, right? Uh, but I'm not talking about grammar. I'm talking about in, the intentions of what you're saying. Is it true? Is it necessary? Is it kind? Speak those kinds of things. Is it true? Is it necessary? Is it kind? You teach your kid to, to say what needs to be said. And then you teach your kid to refrain, hold your tongue, right? To watch your words. Uh, teach him what not to say. Don't lie. Don't cuss. Don't complain. Don't exaggerate. I mean, for like humor and stuff, that's different. But, you know, don't exaggerate when you're trying to communicate something. And now what you're saying is not reliable. Don't lie. Don't cuss. Don't complain. Don't exaggerate. That's... That's probably the best way to go. And I suppose the, the uh, most important one would be don't curse. Don't, like, don't uh, insult or attack someone, right? Look at James chapter 3, verse 10, uh, and this whole thing on like taming your tongue, on, on controlling your words. In verse, verse 10, he says, From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Right? That shouldn't be the case. Your kid should not speak both praise and curses. He should be saying what he, what's true and necessary and kind, and he should be refraining from saying anything that is a curse. Colossians chapter 4, verse 6 says, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, meaning sanitized. Let your speech always be gracious and sanitized, not, not filthy, not impure. Your kids should learn to speak and to pray uh, in a certain way, to, to say certain things. So I, I train my son to say uh, certain key words, to understand what to pray and how to speak to people, okay? The first is thank you. Second is sorry. Third is help. Fourth is good job. And fifth is I love you. Those are five things I think he needs to be very, very good at saying. Thank you, sorry, help, good job, and I love you. Those are things that we'll get more into later when we talk about what Proverbs has to say about how we use our words. That'll be a later sermon. But teach your kid to watch his or her words. Third, teach your kid to fix his or her gaze. Verse 25. Again, what you see is what you let into your heart, right? So you have to fix your gaze. Fix your gaze. Uh, be careful what you let into your heart. The way that Jesus says it in Matthew chapter 6, he says the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. Right? And he's not talking about eyesight necessarily. He's talking about where, where, you, where you look, where you stare, where you focus, where you put your attention. If it's on something good, good things will, will go into you. And if it's on something bad, bad things go into you. So you should teach your kid to fix his gaze. Don't stare. Don't prolong your gaze at what you shouldn't. I mean, consider if Eve fixed her gaze on the fruit of life, on the tree of life, instead of the forbidden fruit, the fruit of knowledge of good and evil, if she just fixed her gaze instead of going, oh, look at this forbidden fruit, it looks good to eat. 
If she didn't fix her gaze on the forbidden fruit, we'd have a completely different story. Our Bible would be way shorter. Just be like, praise God. That would be it. If Lot's wife fixed her gaze ahead, so she didn't look back at Sodom and go, oh, I kind of miss the, the lifestyle, the luxury, you know, the, the liberty to do whatever I wanted. If she just fixed her gaze forward instead of back on Sodom, she'd never end up a pillar of salt. If David just fixed his gaze instead of letting it linger on Bathsheba, he wouldn't have become a murderer and adulterer. Fix your gaze. Keep it forward where it needs to be. Because it's not on the narrow road that leads to life. That's not where temptations are going to catch you. It's going to be on the road beside. You swerve your head. I taught my son to ride a bike. And one of the things that I told him not to do is not to turn his head and look to the side. To look back. If I'm behind him, not to turn around and look back at me. Because then he swerves the bike and then he'll, he'll crash. Fix your gaze. That's what you got to teach your kid to do. Hebrews chapter 12 uses this idea of fixing your gaze. It says, let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. And that's talking about our life in faith. It's like a race. And it says, looking, which is aphorao, so fixing our gaze, fixing our gaze to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. That's what aphorao means, to look, but it's a, a look intently, to, uh, to look with a, a fixed position, to stare, to peer, to gaze. Teach your kid to fix his or her gaze on Jesus. The temptations and the things of earth will grow strangely dim if you keep your eyes on Jesus. Fourth is teach your kid to keep his or her path, as verse 26 said. Don't go where you shouldn't go. Don't stay where you shouldn't stay. It's like Joseph in Genesis 39. A woman tries to tempt him into adultery, and so Joseph flees. He knew he needed to leave in order to avoid temptation. If temptation is on the computer, avoid being on the computer when you don't need to be or when there's no accountability. If temptation is with a specific person, avoid being in the presence of that person until your heart is repentant and obedient or unless you have accountability. Psalm chapter 1, verse 1 metaphorically uses this. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of Yahweh. And on his law he meditates day and night. Where you go, where are you going to be? Benjamin Franklin, I think, was the one that said, uh, If you lie down with dogs you'll rise up with fleas. That's one of my favorite Proverbs that he, I think he wrote that. If you lie down with, with dogs, you'll rise up with fleas. Watch out who you're with, right? Where you go, who you're with, what you put yourself in the presence of will affect your soul. That's what you have to teach your kid. That's why we, you know, we say like, we want to reach out to the world and stuff, but don't, don't stand in the place of sinners, don't sit in the seat of mockers. Don't join them and participate in their activity. Yes, you'll be with them at school and stuff, but be there to, to invite them to something better. Don't become like them. Watch out where you go. So we have to teach our children what matters. 
You have to teach them to guard their hearts, watch their words, fix their gaze, and keep their path. And then we have to discipline our children properly. Disciplining your child has become a controversial topic in the United States, especially in the past 20 years. Discipline regarding kids is the word we use for whatever consequence we bring as a punishment for a child's bad behavior. Child does something wrong, you punish him, you discipline him. We kind of use that as synonyms. Now, historically, uh, discipline, or actually, today, discipline includes things like grounding your kid. You know, you can't go outside. You, can, you have to stay in the house. Or, uh, uh, or taking away their electronics. You can't play video games. You can't watch TV. Or you give them a timeout. Go stand in the corner, face the wall for a few minutes. You know, you do stuff like that. Um, but, his, but historically and biblically, Discipline has always meant spanking, just physical spanking, just, for lack of a better way to put it, hit the kid. And the Bible is staunch on the need for this. And so it is no wonder why our society so vehemently screams loudly against it. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11. My son, do not despise Yahweh's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for Yahweh reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. That means God wants parents to discipline their children. God does it, you should do it. Don't be wary of God's discipline. Proverbs 13, verse 24. This is my favorite. Uh, whoever spares the rod hates his son. Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but who, he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Chapter 19, verse 8. Discipline your son, for there is hope. Do not set your heart on putting him to death. Chapter 22, verse 15. Folly. Foolishness, folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Chapter 23, verse 13. Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with the rod, he will not die. That's true. Verse 14. If you strike him with the rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. Now, shield just could just mean the grave, but when you're saying save the soul, you're not just talking about someone dying bodily and then going into the grave. You're talking about hell. If you strike him with the rod, you will save his soul from hell. Chapter 29, verse 15. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. That's what happens when you let a child decide his or her own way. A child left to himself brings shame to his, his mother. The rod and reproof give wisdom. Chapter 29, verse 17. Discipline your son, and he will give you rest. He will give delight to your heart. Now, think about how God speaks on this. This is crazy stuff, because this is stuff that I think our culture would freak out about. If you don't spank your kid, you hate him. If you love your kid with the fear of the Lord, you will be diligent to discipline him. If you discipline your son, there's hope. Otherwise, you condemn him to death. 
Discipline is how you expel foolishness from a child. Chapter 23 went so far as to say, if you spank your kid with a rod, you save his soul from hell. Spanking with the rod gives wisdom. If you spank your son, he'll grow up. And when he grows up, he'll give you delight to your heart and he'll give you rest. A relationship with your, with your child that results in you being satisfied and fulfilled in your, in your elder years happens if you discipline your child properly when he or she is young. Now, I know that society says it's more, difficult, sorry, it's, it's more effective to discipline uh, kids without touching them. I mean, I, I went through a bunch of courses on this, you know, in college and stuff, um, that it's, you know, you can discipline your kid without touching them. Just give them the time out. Take away their toys. Or don't tell them they're wrong. You'll break their self-esteem. Only encourage them when they're right. If you just tell them when they're right and you just kind of you know, ease off when they're wrong, don't always come at them and make them insecure, then they'll figure it out. It's not going to happen. God disagrees. Even psychology disagrees. You know, when, when I was studying cognitive developmental psychology, we were going through different experiments on babies that we read about. And uh, in, in one experiment, uh, several, but in one in particular that's on my mind, um, babies that weren't touched and held affectionately were more likely to get sick and die, significantly more likely to get sick and die. They understood love through touch. And that made a huge difference in the well-being of the child. This is, this is proof positive that physical touch has a remarkable effect on understanding, on behavior, on morals, on morale. Kids that are still developing verbally cannot be reasoned with verbally. You're going to use all these words that they don't understand. You're going to use reasoning that they don't understand. The frontal lobe doesn't even finish developing until you're 25, right? So you don't really start to get abstract thinking until around the age of 16, so when the kid's like four, you're going to sit there and be like, this is wrong because, and then you're going to explain it, but then they're not really going to get it. They just figure out what's right, what's wrong. So you, that's why we've learned little axioms that say, if it's not nice to say it, don't say it at all. If you don't have something good to say, don't say it. We just tell them the thing to do. We start with the application. As they get older, you teach them the values behind it. But you start with just the application. That's how kids need to go. Don't touch the stove. Why? Well, if the stove is on, then it's going to transfer heat to your fingers. You're going to burn. You don't, you don't explain that. So you just don't touch it. Don't come in the kitchen zone. Right? You, when I'm cooking, you just you get out of the kitchen. Don't come in here. They can say why, and you can sit there and explain it. But you're, like that's not the primary lesson, is it? The lesson is don't come in. It's dangerous. You start with the application when it's a child. You always have to gauge it that way. It is as difficult to communicate discipline without touch as it is to communicate love without touch. Do you plan to train your child up without ever communicating physical expressions of love? Because God is telling you that disciplining your child is an act of love. You have to exercise all the tools that you have. The most effective way to do it is to speak in a language that children understand. This is God's wisdom for you. You have to spank your kid. Do not despise God's discipline or be wary of it. God reproves his children because he is our father and he delights in us. So then, how do we implement this discipline? Because I can see how this can easily derail into abuse. And that's what we want to be wary of. And the fact that there are cases of abuse should not make you go, oh, well, then I'll just not discipline my kid. 
we should just go, well, what's the wise way to kind of figure this out? All right, so I'm going to share with you five rules that I set up with my son, Elias. And I hope it'll help you. My son is sitting right there. Afterwards, you can verify with him. You can confirm with him whether or not these are the rules that I've given with him and whether or not I live by them. Okay? All right. Five rules. Number one, first time is always free. I probably shouldn't say it that way, but <laughs> the first time is always free. It's just a warning. If he, if he does something wrong, but I never told him that that was wrong, I do not punish him in any way. I just tell him, don't do that. And here's why. And I explain it to him. I don't ever spank him for something he didn't know was wrong. If he didn't know, it's because I didn't teach him. That's on me, not on him. So the first time uh, he does something wrong, you know, in, in that particular kind of action, uh, I tell him, don't do that. But I don't spank him. And I don't, I don't punish him. I just say, don't do that. And I explain why. Second, if he knew it was wrong, and then he did, it, he, he did it anyway, well, then I punished him. But the punishment has to fit the crime. The punishment has to fit the, fit the crime. So if he didn't put his plate away after dinner, I don't just start wailing on him. That doesn't make any sense, right? It, the punishment has to fit the crime. Not everything has to go to spanking. That, like, you, you spank when you, when you need to make a certain kind of uh, impression. But if... Uh, you know, if, if it's not a, a serious thing, then I, I wouldn't go to that degree. If he hurts someone else, or if he lies, or if he's disrespectful to his parents, that's a spanking. Those are kind of the big ones for me. Otherwise, there's some other punishment I'm fine with. I'll take away his video games. Um, I'll make him do the dishes for like a month. Because then everyone wins. But the punishment has to fit the crime. Third, if he has to get spanked, then he will always know exactly how many spankings to expect. He'll always know. He'll know ahead of time. Um, I don't spank him, you know, like, it, it, I don't just go like, all right, here we go, and just start going at it until I get tired, until my arm just gives out. You know, I don't, I don't do that. Um, I, don't, I don't spank him until I feel better. That first time that he does something wrong, and I, you know, the first time's free, right? That first time he does something wrong, when I sit him down, I say, no, don't do that. Uh, here's why. And I explain it to him. But I tell him, if you do that, that'll be five. And I give him a number. I let him know. That, I want you to know, if you disrespect your mom, that'll be 20. If he disrespects me, not 20. He knows not to disrespect me. But, you know, like I, I give him the number. If he lies, it's 100. That is, that's, that's the capital crime for us, you know. It's, I, I fiercely protect our honesty with one another. If I can't trust my son, we have no relationship. And so if, if, he, uh, if he develops a habit of lying with me, then, then I got no son. What, 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 can I, what relationship would I have with him if I can't even trust what he says? So lying would be 100. That's, that's the biggest offense. But he always knows exactly how many. So when it's time to get spanked, he's not like, oh my gosh, how many? And I'm not going to go for like an hour or something. You know, it's, I got more time. Here we, let's keep going. You know, it's, it's not that. He'll always know exactly how much he deserves, how much he earned, for lack of a better word. Fourth, 
When I spank my son, I use a ruler. I don't use a dangerous object. I don't use a baseball bat. I don't use a closed fist, nothing like that. I use a ruler. It's a specific ruler. I named it Justice. <laughs> but when I spank my son, I, 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 don't, I, I don't yell at him when I'm spanking him. I, I, I don't yell. I don't, uh, I don't hit him in anger. And I, I certainly don't try to injure or harm him. The, you know, that's, that's not it. He should never feel like he's in danger. He should be afraid of pain, sure, but not afraid of danger, like harm. No, that's not okay. Uh, we have plenty of time, to, you know, when, when I'm, he's getting in trouble and stuff, and I'm like, you got to get spanked. We have plenty of time to talk before he gets spanked, and he milks it. I mean, he's like, oh, let's talk about this. Let's talk about this. I said, okay, but you're, you're going to get 10. Oh, yeah, 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 but let's talk about this. Let's talk about this. And I'm like, okay, yeah, well, let's talk. And he's like, well, I really, you know, the reason why I did that was because, and I'm like, well, thank you for explaining, but you knew it was wrong, so let's do the 10. He's like, hold on, hold on, hold on, let's pray. Can we pray? And I say, yeah, we can pray. And he's like, God, please forgive me. I know you forgive me. And I'm like, God, I know you forgive him, and I know I have to spank him. You know, like, but we talk about it for a long time. If you ask the people that live in my house, when I'm upstairs in that room and he's getting in trouble, it's a long time I'm in there. And then at the very, very end, you hear like, and then that's kind of it, you know? We're all laughing. We shouldn't be laughing, right? But it's true. He, 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 uh, when he gets spanked, I, I, don't, I don't freak out and scream at him and all that stuff. We have plenty of time to talk about it. Uh, we, do, we do pray about it uh, often. Uh, I don't sling personal insults. He gets spanked. I don't make threats. I don't call him names. I don't keep yelling about how I'm so disappointed and, you know, what a failure he is or something. I don't say stuff like that ever. Uh, he knows when he's done something wrong. So if he's done something wrong, okay, you've got to get spanked because that's the consequence. That's the punishment. The punishment is a spanking, not me, like, verbally just vomiting on him with all my disappointment. I want him to know that he gets spanked because of sin, that he commits, not because I'm angry. He's getting spanked because he sinned. I'm not spanking him because I'm angry. He has to be able to separate those two. So I don't keep talking about it, you know, spanking him, like, how could you do this? Oh, I can't believe you're, you know, I don't do that. Fifth, finally, when the spanking is over, the punishment is completely done. It's gone. I am not still angry. I don't talk about it anymore, and full fellowship is restored. I'll hug him. I'll kiss him. I tell him I love him. Then I'm like, let's go play video games or something like that. There's, it's a completely done issue. It does not linger. The punishment is done. It's over. That's it. And that is so important to me that my son understands when the punishment is paid, it is paid in full and it never comes back. Because that will help him understand what Jesus did for him. When he paid your penalty, when he paid your punishment, it's paid in full, it's never coming back. As far as the east is from the west, so your, your sins are removed. So he understands what happens on the cross by the manner in which he's disciplined. It's over. It doesn't come up again. Full fellowship is restored with God because Jesus paid the punishment. That has to be modeled in me. Full fellowship is restored with me, his biological father, his earthly father, because the punishment has been paid. There's no fear of bringing up the past. 
That's how I discipline my son. Every parent has to discipline their child out of obedience to God. Maybe you'll figure out some other rubric or something, but this is what, uh, what I landed on in conviction um, when, you know, when I knew that I have to figure out how I'm going to discipline my son before I have a son. Before I have a son or daughter, I need to know what's, what's my conviction on this. What, what does God say about this, and how am I going to be obedient to the Lord and have restraints on myself so that I don't do something out of line? Because you never get the time back, you know. You, you, childhood is the prime time to instill certain values, mindsets, principles. If you miss this time when they're a child, if you miss that time to, to discipline them and teach them right, then it's trouble. It is easier to build strong children than it is to repair broken adults. So train your child well. Discipline your children well. Do it because God commands it. It'll save their lives. The kids must understand discipline so that they understand punishment. They need to understand uh, what sin is and how dire its consequences are. That's the first step of the gospel. They have to know that discipline isn't just, oh, I get to stand over here for a minute and then come back and everything's fine. There, there has to be a fear of punishment. That will save their soul from eternal punishment. Well, let me give you some final thoughts. Things I might preach on someday if I ever do a follow-up on this, but here are just some real quick thoughts. First is just adjust to your kid's developmental stage. Baby, toddler, preschooler, elementary school, adolescent, teenager, young adult, adult. At each stage, you're going to have to adjust. They're going to have different different developmental, you know, capabilities, where they're at, where they're not at. You can't be looking at your eight-year-old like, why aren't you paying rent? You're still living with your parents? You can't. That's, that wouldn't be developmentally appropriate. So you have to, to gauge, you know, where, where the kid's at. Another one, parenting is like farming. You know, if you, if you plant a seed in the morning, you don't have fruit in the afternoon, right? That takes seasons and years even. And it's the same with kids. You, uh, you, you planted a seed, yes, and then that seed is, is growing. When does the fruit come out? Probably when your kid is old enough to have kids of his or her own. That's when you start to see the fruit of the, of the parenting you've done. And, and I, I, I stand on the promise from God that it's worth the wait. Look at Proverbs 17, verse 6. Grandchildren are the crown of the aged. And the glory of children is their fathers or their parents. Think about that. You want to raise your children in wisdom. And if you do, they'll be the crown. The crown of the aged. When you have grandkids, that will be like the best thing ever. Because you got kind of nothing else going on at that point. Right? But no, really, it's the best thing ever. That shows you the fruit of how you've raised your family. And hopefully it's good fruit. But that last part is interesting to me. The glory of children is their fathers, is their parents. I wait for the day where my son says, my glory is my parents. That's the best thing in my life. Because right now, Yu-Gi-Oh is the glory of his life. 
or Pokemon or magic tricks or, you know, like Rubik's Cubes. He has, everything's the glory of his life. At what point will he say, my parents are the glory of my life? Someday, if we're doing this right. Kids will always need to be taught and disciplined at the least convenient times. When you're stressed, when you're distracted, when you're tired, you get no vacation from it. So don't think, oh, I'll just train my kid when he comes home from school, and then it'll be okay at night. I have, I have me time. It's not true. It's not true. I'll, I'll be asleep, and then all of a sudden, like someone's poking me, I open my eyes, and I've only had like an hour of sleep, you know, for the night, and so I'm, I'm trying to catch up. Uh, he's poking me. I look over, and he's got like the tablet in his hand. He's like, can you unlock the tablet for me so I can play video games? I'm like, why do you need to wake me up for this? And he's like, because I want to play video games. Okay. <laughs> no. And then I go back to sleep. But, you know, I had to train him up, right? It's the least convenient times. That's when you have to do it. When it comes to decision-making in your family, there's a difference between giving your kids a view, a voice, and a vote. In a lot of situations, you just give them a view. You're like, hey, this is what we as a family are doing. See? You give them a view. Sometimes you give them a voice, like, hey, we're going to do this. What do you think? And then they say the thing, and you go, oh, well, okay, but we're doing that. Either way. And sometimes you give them a vote, like, what do you want for dinner? And then they get a vote. Doesn't mean you go with the vote, but, but maybe they can convince you. And be able to distinguish when to give your child a view, a voice, and a vote. Another one, enjoy your kids. This is like huge, right? Enjoy your kids. Work hard at having fun, making memories. Um, your job is not to throw them into school and throw them into church and throw them into, I don't know, Kumon, jujitsu, you know, like it's, it's not just to throw them into a bunch of programs. You, you got to get involved in their life. Enjoy what they do too. Even, even though it's childish. <laughs> when, when we went on vacation two weeks ago, um, we would get back to this little hotel room that we're in and, uh, and there's no room in this hotel. It's just beds and then like walk space around it. So I, I sit on the bed and then uh, Elias and Christine uh, sit on the bed and they pull out Yu-Gi-Oh cards, and Christine's playing Yu-Gi-Oh with Elias. It's the most hilarious thing. I'm like, what is this? I've never seen that before. I don't know how to play that. I, you know, uh, I'll, I'll play like role-playing games and stuff with them, but like, it's just hilarious to watch Christine playing Yu-Gi-Oh. <laughs> Enjoy your kids, you know. Why should your kid care about what you're going to teach them or discipline them if you don't even like them? Your kid should be your best friend. That's how I try to go about it. Just be thrilled to be able to spend time with your kid. And of course, you really have to come down to the understanding of raising kids has to do with God and Jesus. Right? Jesus is not a biological child of God. It's, it, that, that relationship is more communicated to us to talk about subordinate authority. That's fine. But God did allow Jesus to be born as a human being and to be taught and to be disciplined, right? You hear of it. Even when he's 12 years old in Luke chapter 2, verse 52, Jesus is 12 years old and it says, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. That Jesus too had to be taught because he came in flesh. He's God, gave up his omniscience and put on humanity. He was fully human. He had to grow up just like we did. And he increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God. So he had to be taught. 
And even though Jesus never sinned, God still disciplined him. You know how like we think discipline is just punishment for doing something wrong, but discipline also means like develop like developing the ability to do something right. You have to put yourself through hard stuff. When you discipline yourself to wake up early every day, or you discipline yourself to watch your diet, you discipline yourself to exercise regularly. That discipline isn't because you did something wrong. It's just to develop what to do right. And God let Jesus be disciplined to go without food for 40 days and 40 nights. The Spirit led him that way. Right? God let him be disciplined to be born as a human being and go through 30 years of just growing up in this world. And he had to just go through it to figure things out. God's discipline on Jesus is not because Jesus ever sinned. He didn't. But it was to prepare him to do what needed to be done, which is to endure the cross, the mocking, the torture, the rejection, and the pain and the death. He had to be ready for that moment. Hebrews 12. It's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you. This is verse 7, sorry. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Verse 9. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Discipline will be for the child's good and will train them in holiness. God commands you to raise your child his way. Teach them diligently his commands and discipline them with the rod. And if you do, you'll be loved by them, blessed by them, and you will be their glory. If you believe it, say amen. Let's pray. Father, we trust you. You teach us what's right and you warn us of what's wrong. That happens in scripture, that happens at church. But first and foremost, and most importantly, that happens in the home by what parents teach and how they discipline. And so we pray, God, that we would take on that responsibility with awe and wonder and with fear and trembling, that we would walk in wisdom, in fear of you, amazement, gratitude, awe, reverence. We hope, Lord, that we can hear the different voices that come at us. There's the voice of God in the word, and then there's the voice of culture and society in the world. May we trust what you say is wisdom from above. To love our children, to teach them, to discipline them, that it would save their souls. Bless us, Lord, even if we're not gonna be parents, Lord, help us to sift through the issues that we have with our own parenting. So many of us have come from abuse and that has so damaged how we think kids ought to be raised. 
Lord, that's just affected our outlook on life. Many of us were trained with a different center in our families. And the center was not Jesus. So we pray, God, that you would just help us to repent, to change our minds in the areas in which we've been taught the wrong way. But instead, to trust you with all our heart and lean not on our own understanding to acknowledge you in the ways in which we raise our children. And if we do, we know that you will make straight our paths. Thank you for your instruction. We pray for your spirit to give us the strength to follow it. All this we pray for Christ's glory in his name. Amen.